Hello and welcome to the 18th episode of Inside Music. I'm your host, James Shotwell, and to be honest, I have probably spent an hour recording this introduction today. It's kind of a messy process. You would think that because the show is only one solid take of a conversation that these introductions come together just as easily, but that is rarely the case. In fact, I would say we probably spend more time putting together the show than we do recording the show each week. So every time you hear one of these and it seems like it just runs through real smooth, that's probably the 100 or 150th take. In fact, this is actually the 75th take I've done while trying to record the introduction to this episode. All I've been trying to say is that Ray Harkin is the guest this week, the host of 100 Words or Less, one of my favorite podcasts and a show I know many of you like as well. I got to talk to Ray about his youth in California, his time in the band Taken, his work with No Sleep, his work with PETA, and of course, the podcast we all know and love. It's a really great conversation, and I can't wait for you to enjoy it, but first, we have to get to that message from our sponsor. Inside Music is only made possible by Holix, the internet's leading digital promotional distribution company. Whether you're looking to get your music in front of the press or you simply want a little help fighting piracy, Holix has the tools you need. For more information on Holix and access to a free 30-day trial, visit www.holix.com. That's www.haulix.com. Okay, let's get to the show. Well, this whole year sucked so far, but it's going better. <laughs> it's going better because um, I have some resolution on a terrible leak problem I've been having at my house. So that's positive. Oh, I was like a leak problem. I know how we can fix that. Um, but you're talking about like no, an actual no, no. leak. No, I'm talking. I'm talking about the 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 non-musical leak. <laughs> so yeah, no, just just dealing with insurance and repairs and all this stuff. So it's been crappy but now today i have some very positive news so it's it's good thank you well i like to start the show on an up note so this is this is a good way to start you brought some good news like right out the gate uh, that's i i <laughs> my name my name is not ray if for the ray of sunshine that i potentially bring to people when i interact with them <laughs> well that's i like that that's that's creative good <laughs> so uh i mean how so you say the 2015 has been bad but I mean, how are you otherwise like generally speaking how is your weekend it's still monday morning i we can kind of ease into this yes we, oh i i i'm I, I usually come out of uh mondays both guns blazing uh but yeah the weekend was good besides my kid getting a little bit sick but uh you know that's part and parcel of being a child you get sick so and then my wife is a high school English teacher, so I helped her grade papers like the good husband that I am. So, you know, it was a very mellow weekend, but uh, a productive one nonetheless. Sounds like it. I mean, I had visitors this weekend from, well, my, my fiance had visitors, and then we saw Garth Brooks one night, so that's pretty much the highlight of my weekend. Yeah, well, you, you <laughs> the, thun- the, th- the thunder rolls and the lightning strikes. It literally rolls in the show. Like there's, he plays. There's like a big thunder track that plays while the song plays. Of course, as, right? As well, you should <laughs> when you have a kajillion dollars to spend on production. Yeah, yeah. We were doing the math. Like this tour he's on right now. He's doing like every city like seven or eight shows, and then every ticket is only sixty five dollars. But at that rate, like six shows in Boston at the Garden at sixty five dollars a pop, that's like an average of a million plus a show. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's 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 crazy. I mean, it's crazy when you look at uh, production on any scale, where it's like. 
yeah, a band may get paid, you know, $20,000 to sell out like, you know, whatever, a 1500 cap room. But then you look at how many hands are involved in putting that on. And then, you know, the band is like, cool, we got like 10 grand to split amongst five people. Sick. Yeah, it's true. Garth is a little different in that he has two shows a night sometimes. Um, His opener is also his backup singer. So you kind of cover one bill right there. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and uh, there's no pyro, there's no sparks, there's only lights and his stage. And I guess the drum kit is kind of like a big gerbil ball that like lights up and spins. But mm-hmm. otherwise, it's like the most low key setup you can imagine. And I was just like, he's just maximizing profits, just pushing them hard. <laughs> as 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 well he should, because he's he's an adult. He's been doing this for quite some time. He's not a. Uh, you know, stupid 18 or 19 year old kid having, you know, two buses on a tour where it's like, come on, you're just, you're just burning money left and right. It's true. Also, what was weird, I, I've been to a couple of arena shows in the last year. Like I saw Kanye and we saw Miley, we saw One Direction and other embarrassing artists that I continue naming. Um, but this is the first time I've ever been to like an arena or a stadium where there was legitimately no security. Like we just walked in the door. There's no cops, Interest. no, no secure, no, like, um, you know, what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? Like metal detectors, nothing. They were just like, oh, you're, here's your, t- scan your ticket and go. Like you could have carried in. I tweeted that you could have brought your dog and nobody probably would have noticed. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. They're, they're, it, it, I mean, it's cool that you notice that because it's definitely one of those things where it's like I, I for a few years I put on a music festival in uh, just maybe about two hours or about an hour north of L.A. in a city called Santa Barbara. And I, it's one of those things like the first year I did it with my friend, we you know, we had no idea what we were doing. And there were <laughs> the specific example of like having an on-site uh, email. MT person was you know we just didn't have that because we just didn't consider that but it's like by the time the weekend had closed it's a three-day festival so Friday Saturday and Sunday by the time the weekend had closed the ambulance had been to our festival I think 37 or 38 times and so by by Sunday evening the ambulance drivers were like hey hey dum-dums you need to have an EMT on site because we can't come out for a kid, you know, getting cut like when, you know, the cut's bad, but like an EMT person can take care of this pretty easily as opposed to calling the ambulance. And I'm just like, oh yeah, you're right. That makes sense. We'll, we'll do that next year. I would, that's something I guess I would never think of. I was going to ask you about that festival. I never got, I I obviously never attended it, but that was like, it's on the long list of things you've done with your life that I don't know how to fit into a single conversation. So I'm glad that you well, found a way. You fit. You shoehorned it in. Very well done. <laughs> I I do I, I do what I can. It's definitely uh, my fault for being. Uh, I wouldn't even say attention deficit disorder. I just get opportunities come across my desk, and then I'm like, that sounds way too fun to say no to. So I uh, yeah, I apologize because I definitely do have a a laundry list of random stuff to talk about. I <laughs> know I like it though. I'm I'm the same way where I, I I'm the kind of person that like I want to do everything that sounds fun to me at the time. So like if you have an idea and I feel like there's any chance. I can squeeze it into my day. Like I, I want to do that thing with you. So I, I, I completely get where you're coming from with that. Like this podcast, I'm excited that we're doing it because as a longtime Law & Order fan, I'm a huge fan of crossover episodes. Of course. And anytime you're able to combine two, two worlds that live in the same ecosystem, you're just like, why shouldn't you do that? 
Yeah, exactly. My fiance has been uh, binge watching Roseanne because I got her the complete series for uh, Christmas and they did like 12 or 13 episodes where they cross over with random TV series. And every time I was like, I want to do this on the podcast more often. It's fun. It's always fun. It's weird, but it's always fun. Well, yeah, there's there's that weird level of like competition where you're just like, oh, but people should be checking out my thing and my thing alone. And like that obviously doesn't happen in this world today. You don't need to care about that anymore. Yeah, people are going to consume whatever they consume. And I like to think that a good crossover is two things that are different enough that they don't necessarily compete. Like we have, we both have podcasts and there's the general competition there. But I think the way that your show works and the way my show works tend to go in different routes, just like everyone else's. Like that's really the key is like the twist you bring to it. Oh, totally. You get you got to find your corner and you have to find your sort of unique voice from that perspective. Because otherwise it's like, um, you know, no, no, sh- no shot against anybody. Obviously, that does the sort of uh, digestion of the week's worth of music news because obviously there's a space for that. But I- I- I'm not interested in that personally, and like that's obviously why my show did not start off like that. And so, but there's a need for it. But it, yeah, you you kind of like you said, you you get your own corner, you get your own niche, and then you're like, okay, if you want, you know, really long <laughs> rambling interviews, you listen to this thing. If you want, you know, music critiques you listen to this thing and yeah everybody's gonna have their own pastiche of podcasts that they listen to so i had this idea where i was like maybe this time around i'll start the show by talking about what's going on right now and work our way backwards to the beginning but then i realized that if i want to talk about something like taken it makes it makes more sense to start at the beginning of your story so i guess we we got to go back we got to go all the way back to like the beginning the origin of ray so, uh, sounds absolutely perfect the origin of ray as it were in the uh, musical sense Yeah, uh, I mean, I think we can all figure out how you like got onto the planet, but after that, I'm kind of (laughs) curious. Yeah, yes, exactly. (laughs) Are your like are your parents musicians? That's a good place to start. That is a good place to start. I appreciate that. Uh, In no way, shape, or form. I uh, my my mother, both my mother and my father had no musical aspirations. They liked music, but in the same way that you know, I imagine your parents liked music, or many of the listeners' parents liked music. Where it just it was, it was something thing that they did in the car or whatever there was never any uh devotion to it to a scene or to anything and when i say scene i don't mean like a scene as we know that word but like a scene you know my my parents weren't hippies you know my dad liked sort of classic rock stuff and he brought me he did bring me to some great shows when i was like my first uh musical experience was uh i saw nxs and at the uh, thomas and mack center in las vegas nevada when i was about eight or so and this is is obviously before Michael Hutchins, the singer of the band, uh, committed suicide. Um, but it was a, I mean, just an incredible show because it was like, oh, cool, I could just dance in the aisles and like no one cares about this and this is fun. Um, but but my parents were not musically inclined in any capacity. It's funny that you mentioned dancing in the aisles. Like, where were you sitting in this concert? Was it like an like arena with like bowls or was it a theater? Yeah, no, it was definitely an arena because that's where the Thomas and Mack Center is where the uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas plays their college basketball. And like, it's just it's a very, you know, iconic stadium in Vegas. And so, yeah, total total stadium seating. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just popped out to the aisles and security. You know, they're not going to stop an eight year old kid having fun. So I could just do whatever I want. Yeah, I don't think I ever went to a show that big when I was that young. Like, I, I went to a lot of concerts when I was little, but never one on that scale. Uh, the reason I thought it was funny you mentioned dancing is because this past weekend when I was at a, an arena at a concert, Garth Brooks comes out on stage, starts his song, and my fiance gets up to start dancing, and an old woman behind her in our balcony seats was literally just like, 
starts swearing at her, asking her to like sit down so that the rest of them can enjoy the show, which is something yep, I've never yeah. heard before. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely, like I said, I had a past because I was eight years old and really I wasn't blocking anybody. But, you know, I, I could definitely see where there's, uh, you know, more rules and regulations placed on, you know, proverbial adults <laughs> dancing in front of someone when they're like, hey, I came to watch this thing, not to watch someone dance. Yeah, and I think it's also, like, it's a weird generational thing where, like, a Garth Brooks concert, more than an NXS concert, like, there's a chance that somebody will come and bring their son, their daughter, and their grand and their mom and their dad. Like, they, you can have, like, three generations at a Garth Brooks concert, and I think that that kind of changes the dynamic of the audience and, like, the way a live crowd is supposed to, like, interact with the performer as a result. Because, like, an NXX show, people are there to have a good time. With a family show, it's it's just that there's a family element to it or it's like, uh, you got to kind of rein it in a little bit. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And I definitely have, uh, an experience when my father continued to, cause my parents were divorced at an early age and I spent a lot of time commuting back and forth from Southern California to where my mother and stepfather moved to me when I was about seven. And then between the ages of about eight and 12, I would go out, you know, every so often to visit my father and then um, he uh, was a perpetual, uh, he was married by the time that he passed away. He was on his third marriage. So, you know, he was one of those dudes that was always either dating somebody and or uh, looking to uh, pursue a female. So uh, he would take me to, you know, if he was going out on a date, he would take me to that concert, which, you know, now as a parent, I'd be like, dude, I would never do that. I mean, even if I was divorced and like taking <laughs> women out on dates, I would never take my child on a date. But my dad did. And so I got to see one of the more iconic bills that I saw was like, gosh, it was at, I can't remember what casino it was at, but it was, uh, you know, Gin Blossoms, Spin Doctors and Cracker. And of course, this was like 1990, 91, maybe. So this was like the you know, these bands were absolutely exploding. And my dad just snuck me in. He just like completely put me like kind of underneath a, a coat of his and then just like walked by security and like security just didn't notice. And so in the same way that you could have snuck a dog into the Garth Brooks concert, I got snuck into that concert. But that's a crazy lineup. That has to be like the whitest show of all time. Oh, it was. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. But uh, yeah, that was exactly the sort of musical uh, experience that I had. Like I said, with my parents, it was just it, it was something to do rather than something to, you know, invest your time in besides just, you know, go to concert because that's like what you did on the weekends or whatever. So where does this like passion for music come from? I mean, I guess you could say the shows kind of plant the seeds, but is it like listening to music on these commutes back and forth for mom and dad? Like where do you really start to get this passion, to, this strong interest in music beyond the typical fandom? Yeah, no, it's 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 definitely always interesting to try to trace it back. I, I definitely attribute. I, I just was always curious about it because it was like you know from something of seeing like the earlier Columbia House, you know, buy twelve CDs for ninety nine cent catalog to like it just seemed interesting to me because it's like you would see these you know artwork from like completely non connected bands, but because they were all on the same you know, magazine ad or whatever, they were connected where it's like a band like Megadeth and then, you know, Aaliyah or whatever. And it's like, I, it just, none of it made sense to me in the context of like, oh, these are bands that sound different. I just knew that music was, was cool. And I, I kept, you know, discovering it via, you know, the radio, of course, being like as old as I am, 
which, you know, I started to listen to the radio in the early 90s. That, you know, it was a complete boom for commercial radio. And that was how you were exposed to that stuff. And so I just kept digging and digging. And then um, it, I definitely attribute the uh, 120 minutes on MTV, which I'm sure, you know, you're at least generally aware of, where it was just, it was amazing because it was like, you know, from 11 to like one in the morning on MTV, they played these, you know, subversive music videos uh, from, you know, anything from whatever the Pixies to Rage Against the Machine. So anything deemed, you know, like I said, edgy or alternative um, that couldn't be played during the daytime or even the evenings. And that was the first time I saw Rage Against the Machines, uh, you know, Killing in the Name of video. And I was like, what is this? And that started to open my eyes up to the fact that like, oh, like, this all of this this thing that we define as either government or religion or whatever like oh there are people that are bummed at this like oh so i think that's when i started to really latch on to the fact that there were, was discontent that could be described in music and so then i just started to you know splinter off in a million different directions from you know getting it cuz in the you know whatever 93 to 96 that was when um, you know, a lot of stuff was happening in hip hop. So it's like Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, you know, the chronic and doggy style were just like those records you couldn't escape in Southern California. And so being a, you know, total nerdy, uh, white suburban kid, of course I can relate to every single lyric of those dudes. It's like, no, I could be further removed from it, but I loved it all the same. And so, uh, it was just so freeing as I'm sure that you had that same experience where, because you're not attached to any sort of particular musical genre, you just listen to everything and like it all makes sense to you as opposed to like, oh, dude, I, you know, I can't listen to this because of, you know, these trappings or this is cheesy or whatever, you know, it just everything made sense. So I just stuffed it all in my head and, and then out came out what it was. I follow definitely. Now, are you an only child? I am an only child. So right. I had plenty, I had plenty of time to uh, sit alone in my room and digest whatever music I wasn't allowed to have. I, I, like I do again, reflecting back on my mother, because uh, that's who I primarily was was raised with. I can't believe she just let me have all this stuff like completely unencumbered. Like, I, I mean, Doctor Dre's The Chronic on CD has a weed leaf on it, and she like she just didn't care. And it was like not because she was a bad parent, but it was just like whatever, like if this is what he's into, then this is what he's into. And so there was never any like, I had to hide stuff underneath my bed. Like I know a lot of other people had that experience of like, oh, my parents are going to throw away my music. It's like, I never had that risk. And I just knew that I was like, okay, I'm not going to put on something super offensive when I'm driving in the car with my mom, because I know that she'd be not only bummed on it, but then I would probably get it taken away. I completely relate to that story. I never, except my parents were like totally on top of what I was listening to music wise. When they came out with CDRs, that was like the game changer for me because then my friends could like burn me a parental advisory album and I would just like draw something on the disc and I'd just be like, I hope I, that I remember that Mario is supposed to be Jay-Z or whatever it was supposed to be. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> totally and, and that was my way of like hiding it until like my dad would be like let's listen to something in your cd collection and i'd be like oh no no not that uh, and then it, then it would just be all terrible <laughs> yeah no no for sure <laughs> but yeah that, like i said if, if you're looking for a, a definitive moment or, or turning point it definitely was like 120 minutes that was such a, a pivotal thing because not only did it expose me like i said to rage against the machine but just like so many other uh you know incredible artists that i have i had i had no context for where it's like oh cool archer's a loaf like what's that and then it, it, it just 
it got me interested in the fact that these bands existed kind of, you know, tangential to whatever was being played in the radio because these songs were not commercially viable from that perspective. And I started to wrap my head around that. And that's when it started me down the rabbit hole of like independent music. I do remember, I remember that show a little bit, but I completely remember discovering artists through MTV. And it's strange how some of those artists have stuck with me when artists I would, I, maybe I was, I felt more passionate about at some point in my life that I discovered through like the internet or something. It kind of goes to the wayside, like how I met, how I found out about them. But like Desa Parasitos, for example, is a great example of like, I remember the little MTV news segment with John Norris sitting there talking about Cotter Oberst with Bright Eyes as this new band. And I remember like falling in love with it by the time that that like three minute clip ended. And because it's MTV, it aired like 17 times that week. Yeah. <laughs> and no, by, for sure. And by the end it of the should. week, you like had to check it out. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's such a, it, it, no matter what age you're getting into, you know, music, it, when you kind of have a more central voice being able to display something towards you, it's crucial, you know, and that, that's, that's obviously one concern that, uh, you know, as, as you kind of grow older and matriculate through independent music and you watch the forms that it changes as far as like the delivery mechanisms and the way that the music is covered, you know, you, uh, I always wonder now where it's just like, well, yeah, I guess you could point to definitive voices, whether it's like music blogs or obviously, you know, MTV fuse, like they still have a presence, but then, you know, like is YouTube, but it's like YouTube isn't a definitive voice. That's just whatever a person's typing into, you know, the search box. And it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe they'll trip on something awesome in the recommended if you like section. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting paradigm that we're in right now. Yeah. So like is SEO the definitive voice and influence today? Yeah, no, no, for sure. And it's like that, that can ultimately be, you know, switched on a dime and it's like, yeah, it's, it's very, you know, I, I'm glad that there's obviously uh, something that I feel like I, I was able to latch on to um, without really, the, like you were saying, where it's like there's no real influence besides the fact that this was just kind of presented to me and like I latched on to it, you know? Yeah, definitely. Now, I want to talk about when you when you first get into music now, are you, do you, is Young Ray want to be a vocalist? Does a friend approach Ray and ask him to be a vocalist? Do you want to play guitar? Like what is, how do you get into music in the first place? Yes, it started off, uh, I was not approached to be a vocalist. It was me and my best friend in junior high, um, you know, after we really started to dive in, like K-Rock was, you know, a, a very popular radio station here in Los Angeles that is still incredibly powerful um, as far as like exposing bands and just kind of getting the word out. Um, you know, we were so hooked into that culture. Like, you know, we were calling in to win tickets and we went to like, almost every single weenie roast for like, you know, three or four years. And the weenie roast for those that, you know, have no clue what I'm talking about. It's just like a huge radio show here in Southern California of, you know, random bands. Like one year I went, it was like, you know, Sublime and then Bush. And it was just, you know, one of those things where it's like, hey, what's who's, what's popping in the radio? Let's put them all together on a stage and have everybody be excited about it. So we were completely wanting to start a band because of watching all of this. So I, uh, because I enjoyed playing drums along to Green Day's Dookie, I was like, oh, I could totally be a drummer. I kill it at air drums. Um, so that's what we did. Just, you know, I got a crappy sunlight kit from, you know, Guitar Center. And uh, then we started, you know, playing really, really terrible covers. Like we definitely covered Corn's uh, Blind because that was obviously the heaviest song you'd ever heard ever in, you know, 1994. Um, and so, yeah, that's when we kind of started to fool around. But I quickly realized that's like, oh, 
like drumming isn't about just feel. You got to like keep time. And that was my huge problem was I could play a beat, but like don't ask me to follow along with something else. Um, so then as I got into high school, then I saw more, you know, there was obviously more people kind of around that were into music or whatever, but, um, my drumming aspirations quickly went away, but then I met a few people who, you know, one of my uh, good friends still, who is the original drummer of Taken, we kind of, you know, started hanging out because he played basketball, I played basketball and we just had kind of time to kill. So we would go back to his house in between school and basketball practice. And he was an amazing drummer. He was like raised on, you know, Metallica and Slayer and all of those really technically proficient bands as far as metal is concerned. And then we kind of just put together a terrible band around that. It was called Doom Society. And we did a bunch of covers where we, you know, covering Minor Threat, uh, Chain of Strength, Battery, kind of like this mish, mishmash of like punk rock and the sort of, you know, the beginnings of the hardcore stuff that I was getting into. Um, and so, but basically I was the only guy that would hang out at my friend Troy's house that didn't play an instrument, but I was loud. Like I was always kind of like the loud kid in school. So I just honestly picked up a microphone and started like, you know, plugged it into a bass cabinet and started trying to yell um, because I was the only person that wasn't doing anything in the room. So it was by pure default that I started to quote unquote sing, scream, whatever you want to label it as. Well, I saw on Tumblr that you posted a photo of your first demo tape. Do you remember for Doom Society? Is that what the band's name was? That is 100% correct. <laughs> now, do you remember making that tape? Oh, abs- like as clear as day. I mean, I definitely remember we had to look around for a friend to be able to actually record that thing for $0. So we had a friend that had like an eight-track recorder, and we basically just bought him you know, pizza or something, and he came over and recorded that. And then um, I was uh, tasked to try to duplicate it in some capacity. So I just was, you know, making terrible dubs that we could sell at school for like three bucks or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, that was, it. but as clear as day, I remember just like the intricacies of like, oh, this is what it takes to like put together artwork and like, this is what it's like to do this. And I, I just remember really loving the process of that because it was just so much fun to kind of like take all these different parts, put them all together into one thing and then like put it out in the world. Unfortunately for people listening, this is a cassette. So there is no, there are, are there any digital files of this band? Does it exist? Yeah. I would be I would be so excited if digital files existed. Um, I don't have a copy of it anymore, which kills me because I would totally just take it to a friend of mine and be like, "Hey, make this in MP3s." But um, the kid that played bass in that band, uh, who I'm friends with on Facebook, he has a copy, and I've been hounding hounding him for it for like a year, and he's just lazy and won't get it to me. So at some point, I will because it's it's just it's pure awesome first band gold where you're just like you're so embarrassed but at the same time so proud because you're just like this is great i was doing this when i was 15 and you should be awful when you're 15 it's true i sometimes revisit the albums from the days not even just my own but like the friends that i had that i were like oh they were so much better than me and then i listen now and i'm like oh these bands are all we were all terrible (laughs) oh dude what are are the most shining examples of that and you, you it's very difficult. I, you could find MP3s of it that float around online, but you wouldn't even understand where this is coming from. But like Jimmy Eat World, their very first CD, which I have a copy of, is, I mean, they're just a pop punk band. They kind of sounded like face to face. And it was like, 
you could play it for anybody and be like, oh yeah, what do you think of this? And people are like, yo, this sucks. And you're like, yeah, this is Jimmy World. And you're like, what? No way. And it's like, dude, every band sucks, okay? <laughs> At some point, like, you just have to understand that that's part of growing as it not only as a musician, but growing up in the world. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And it's, it's, it's kind of strange, like how it, like you t- kind of touched on it when you're in the moment, you're just like, Oh my God, we're doing it. Like we are, we are doing it right now. We're going to get there. And then in hindsight, you're just like, Oh, we were so far from it. Like, <laughs> well, cause I, I think the, 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 the operative term there is it because it to you when you're, you know, 15 is like, dude, if we play a show, like that'll be the sickest thing ever. And then you play a show and you're like, dude, that was the sickest thing ever. There was a pit. And it's like your 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 standards are so like immediate right in front of you. And it's just, it's great because obviously they're easily attainable. Um, and your expectations are very rarely crushed at that time because they're, they're just so tempered with youthful enthusiasm, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's no feeling in the world like seeing somebody sing your song the first time, especially if you have like if you can write like one song, especially if you're in like breakdown bands and you had like that good breakdown song, you didn't really need to do anything else. Like, yeah, you're, you're golden, dude. You're golden. Satisfied. You can play anywhere and have new fans and just feel like <laughs> you were gonna like take over the world. Totally. Yeah, you're like, well, I'm, I, I've reached Mount Olympus. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank Drop D Tuning, and yeah. that's it. <laughs> and, and my sweet Metal Zone guitar distortion. Thank you very much. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so let's talk about Taken, not the movie, the band. What? When? Uh, when did you? When does this happen? You're still in high school, right? Yes, still in high school, and we were. It, and just to, just to back it up a little bit, you have uh, you, you mentioned the movie Taken. There was actually also a miniseries that predated the movie Taken on the Sci-Fi Channel. Oh, actually, yeah, I think it was the Sci-Fi Channel uh, called Taken, directed by Steven Spielberg, and the soundtrack got put out in Columbia Records when Taken was still a band. So the day that got released, I got phone calls congratulating me for signing to Columbia Records. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then they were like, oh, it's a soundtrack for the Taken show on television. Anyways, it's just funny. So anytime anybody mentions Taken the movie, I was like, oh yeah, I wish that came out when we were a band because that probably would have given us a rad bump. Um, <laughs> but anyways, yeah, Taken did start when when I was in high school. It was about like sophomore year because uh, Doom Society basically just fizzled out because you know that's what most early bands do. And then uh, two of the members, in, or one of the members of that, and I were really close. It was me and the drummer Troy, and we were like, "Yeah, let's uh, you know, let's do something a little more aggressive." And so then we did the good old fashioned. Yeah, I made a flyer with like a little pull off with a, of my phone number, and then just posted it on local record stores, and was like, "Hey, you know, looking looking for a band that wants to rip these bands off." Like we wanted to sound like Snapcase, Earth Crisis, Strife, like Unbroken, whatever. You know, we just put a bunch of random influences. And then um, had absolutely terrible auditions with a lot of people um, that were really, really awkward. And then uh, finally, we keyed into two guys who were on the same level as what we were, uh, Dan and Chad. And they were uh, we were the core duo. And we had we had a kid play bass for us the first show, but then um, the kid who played guitar in Doom Society, uh, who actually now, who now plays in Circus Survive. So you know, there's a musical transition there. Um, he played. He was like he was so envious of what we were doing with Taken at the early juncture. And he was like, oh man, I want to play bass for you guys. And the kid that was playing bass for us at the time was just, he didn't care. So we're like, okay, but he didn't have a bass guitar or he didn't even know how to play bass. You know how to play guitar, but that was it. So we're like, okay, just buy some bass equipment, then you're in. And he did. And then, uh, yeah, that was the core of Taken for a good 
uh, I would say about four years, but uh, yeah. And so it all, it all started to happen. And we, I guess it was like late 99 is when we started to kind of, you know, play more serious shows and started to take it more seriously. Okay. So you now, you said late 99, you graduate in the spring of 99, right? So is that, is that what was holding you back? Um, no, I wouldn't say it was holding back because I mean, we, we definitely, yeah. When I say 99, it was definitely like, that was our first kind of real, you know, we were signed to a record label by that point. We had released our first EP prior to that. We were, we basically toured during the summers. Um, so it's like, you know, everyone, I remember my junior year of high school, it was like, everyone was planning their summer vacations and I was booking a tour for taken. And, um, it was just funny coming back my senior year where everyone was like, Oh, cool. I went to, you know, whatever I went to, you know, some random vacation destination. And then I was like, Oh yeah, well I, uh, I did a terrible tour of the United States and they were just like, what, what are you talking about? And then we definitely played the uh, senior year talent show and scared the bejesus out of basically everybody that was there, um, which was really, really fun. But yeah, it's so school. We never at that time too, band like hardcore bands in general like there was no semblance of of making a living or a career out of this thing so we never had like our eyes on that prize as far as like oh dude like man we just we just need to quit school we need to get the hell out of here there was definitely a little bit of that but not to the point of where we felt like we were going to like make a living but we knew that people were taking what we were doing you know somewhat seriously so we had more opportunities to get out there and tour so school didn't hold us back it was definitely just a matter of like it kind of synced up appropriately to where it's like oh well most of us are graduating high school so now we can kind of tour whenever we want that makes sense that makes sense um i I'll, maybe you feel this way i i don't but you touched on how like you hardcore bands at the time especially then were making like making a living doing music and i i definitely remember recognizing that myself at a young age but especially with the hardcore scene as i came up as an admirer before like getting more involved in it i always i was like well at least they're doing like the admirable thing like i was like they don't make a living at it but like these guys are creating real art they're doing something intense and real on stage and that's that matters more to me, I think, because I don't have bills yet. <laughs> right, right. I don't, I don't have to like support myself. And I remember like there's, I don't know what, what the exact word would be for it, but it's kind of like that allure of the stage where it's like, well, as long as you're doing it for the right reasons, that'll, that, that's enough. That's enough to, ju- especially when you're young, like as long as you feel like you're doing the right thing, then yeah, money doesn't really matter. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, and plus like we never, the, uh, the success that we had, like, because I, I always, I always describe taken like this, like, we never ever ever were a quote-unquote big band like you know the best that we could do it's like you know we would we would sell at chain reaction here in southern california we could do really well in for whatever reason southern ontario up in canada we would do really well there and some other pockets around the country but the rest of the place we'd play to like you know the rest of our places in the country you'd play to like 30 or 40 people and it didn't matter but the, i think the difference for us was the fact that like people, people got us or they didn't get us. Like they either hated us or they were like, you're the best band ever. So it was like, I really like retrospectively looking back on how special that time was and how I guess technically special this time is that we're kind of existing. And now, um, it, it, we, we inspired a reaction. Like people didn't just like, Oh yeah, whatever. That band was whatever. It's like, they either really hated us or like I said, they really liked us. So like, I like going to that, 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 observation that you just stated where it's like yeah if it's inspiring a reaction like that's awesome and we we kind of viewed the band as just the ability to kind of for lack of a better term like collect experiences where it's like 
oh yeah, cool, we can do this thing. And yeah, we took it seriously from like a business standpoint, but we never took a per diem when we were on tour. We always paid for our own food. You know, we never like the, the band, basically every dollar that we made from either, you know, the door or merch went immediately back into the band. We never had any idea that we were go we should be doing these things like taking a per diem and like paying ourselves in some capacity. It was always just, you know, siphoned right back in the band. And it was always the lifestyle that we liked because we basically all had jobs. It was like I was working at an independent record store. The rest of the guys were working at sort of like transient jobs, whether it was like, hey, you know, bank, like I'm quitting or if I'm valuable enough to you, you're going to give me this month off or whatever. So we all kind of like built our lives around this fact that, you know, at any any given moment, we need to accept this tour because it's too cool of an opportunity to pass up. Um, again, going back to the fact that there was no, there was no real roadmap as far as a living was concerned. It, honestly, it wasn't until we saw our friends in Poison the Well just basically explode. That's, that was when it was like, oh, I guess that there is a way for this to reach out. But, it, but at, still at that point, it was, it was in its infancy and Poison the Well was still just like trying to wrap their heads around it. Like seeing how they were reacting to their complete, um, and utter, realization that they just had no idea what they were doing as far as like uh, a business side of things was concerned. Um, that was the first band, like I said, that it made it apparent that there was that you, I guess, could do something sort of larger than just the, you know, playing the 300 people. And that was the most successful you could be. So who controls, I know that I know there's a reunion and we'll get there in a second, but who controls the band's music today? Cause I noticed that Take it, some of Taken's music is on Spotify, for example, but there's another band called Taken whose name also comes up, and the two discographies have been slammed together. So it seems like Taken is still together, and they just released a new single that sounds like an Attack Attack song. <laughs> yeah, as far as like who can, well, technically, we, we as in the band own the masters, we were on a label that is now defunct called Goodfellow Records, um, who was an incredible label from like 97 till about 2006, 2007 before it started to fizzle out. And uh, so they they put out all of our records and basically it just kind of like, you know, they the label fizzled. I waited a few years and I was like, hey, like all this, all of our stuff isn't up digitally. That was my biggest concern where I was like, yeah, the, like the re- the release that I'm most proud of is not up anywhere. And I, that kind of bums me out. So basically I was able to get all the master rights back, be able to put it out via what we, why you see that sort of uh, mashup in Spotify and other, uh, you know, digital platforms um, with a label called Other People Records. And so basically they released it digitally and on vinyl just to kind of bundle it all up together. So anybody that does trip across Taken in however they do, can find it and obviously not be utterly confused. Like uh, obviously the band that you mentioned, like, you know, they sound nothing like us. So I'm not, I don't necessarily care if a kid trips across that and is like, yo, Taken sucks. It's like, whatever. That's, you know, they're, they're clearly not doing any research besides just clicking a few buttons. Um, so yeah, that's, that, that, that's who controls the music now is the band in conjunction with other people records. It's, it was funny to me just because it was like this song, I don't even remember what it was called. Their new single that this other Taken has released came out like literally last week. And I was just staring at my computer for a second. And I was just like, I feel like Ray would have mentioned this. <laughs> I feel like at <laughs> totally. least in passing, you would have been like, maybe we could talk about that new song that we released. And, I was, and then I hit play and I was like, this really doesn't seem like a Ray thing. 
Like there's like yeah. there's like that thick synthesizer hardcore, and I was just like, he doesn't really remind me of a Winds of Plague kind of guy. Like no, 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 you're 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 very very perceptive, my friend. Yeah, that has that has nothing to do with us. So uh, you know that's that's fine. We can we can both exist in the same world, and that's fine. If they if they attempt to sue us, we'll be like, hey guys, uh, we have you know whatever uh, imminent domain or whatever argument you could do where it's like, oh yeah, we technically copyrighted this name back in like 1996. So sorry. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, got to give it up for loose copyright laws in this exactly. country. Exactly. It's beautiful. <laughs> um, I do want to talk about the band a little more before we dive into like, the music industry side of things. So the band the band breaks up in 2004, calls it quits, and then this past December, you have a reunion. So like, let's. I know not a lot of people know Taken, but it's always cool to me when bands do reunions, especially a band like Taken where it's not like you guys have fans and you had to establish yourselves, but at the same time, you're not like an acceptance where like people are like banging down the door, like, demanding for Taken to come back. So like when, where does the idea originate to do a reunion? And what is that first conversation with the band, the other guys being like, Hey, should we do this again? Like, is everyone on board from the beginning? Like, can you kind of walk me through that? Yeah, of course. No. And it's a very, it, it is a complete, uh, it, it still boggles my mind today that like people even, remotely care about what we're doing so uh, the lineage for that so yeah we broke up in 2004 I played in a band after that called Makoto which was basically just kind of um, you know retro retroactively looking at that band um, that was like my most I guess inauthentic music I've ever done uh, and I don't mean that as any sort of slight against the people that I played with because they're all my friends and I had a really good time but that was basically us looking to capture a moment that was when Under Oath was breaking and we kind of like you know we had all played in bands before and we basically were just like hey let's use everything we learned into building this thing so it was very uh, it was very strange because f- from the moment that that band hit um, it, it people basically just started talking to me about Taken and saying like, oh, dude, you guys were so great. And it was like, this uh, Taken had been broken up for maybe a year, year and a half. Like, not this like 10-year thing where all of a sudden like people were just like, oh, dude, I love this band. It's like, no, you didn't. Like, no one cared about us. So Makoto was afforded the opportunity to go to go to Japan in 2006 or 2007, I can't recall. But we toured over there, did like a good seven or eight shows that were unbelievable like we were playing to like i don't know five six hundred people a night and i'm like what are you talking about like we are an unknown band like we have a demo why are you coming to the show but then the feedback i got from people especially in japan was just like i love like you know thank you so much for coming over i've been a huge fan of taken and it was just like it, it kept coming up and like not just like one once or twice it was like 40 or 50 times throughout this tour it was like people were having such a genuine reaction with me about Taken and so I just I don't know it was one of those things where it was just like this is weird so basically I had always wanted to compile some sort of our, our, our b-sides like basically our, our seven inches and and demo tape and stuff that we had never released um, so basically I, I, I with the label Goodfellow Records that was still existing I was like hey do you want to do this and he was like sure and then the label that had released some of the Makoto stuff over in Japan released the B-side stuff. And then basically we did a reunion tour in 2008 where we played Southern California. We did some shows up in Canada and then we did a tour in Japan. So basically that that right there set the stage for what everything that was to come afterwards. So basically we did that in 2008. In 2010, we got asked to play a festival in Japan. So we felt we would feel stupid if we just went to Japan and didn't play a show in Southern California. So we did another thing in 2010, again, just kind of setting the table where it was. And that 
I think 2010 was where we all kind of like looked at each other. And I remember specifically coming into practice, rehearsing for for the, that show that we played at Chain Reaction, coming in and like the guys had written new stuff. And I was like, yo, what was well, like, what is this? And they said like, oh, we just happened to, you know, like something came out. And I was like, why, why are you guys doing it? Like, this isn't a thing. We're not trying to like do this again. And they were like, well, why, why not really? And I was like, well, like, and it just got me thinking where it's like, yeah, bands don't need to, like, we didn't break up because we hated each other. We broke up because other people had other life obligations, like going to school and, you know, other things. So then basically it just, it's all of us started to think where it's like, yeah, we, I guess we can technically exist in this world of, I guess we're a band, but we're not really, you know, we're not going to tour. We're not going to do these, um, you, you know, we're not going to try to make it quote unquote, like obviously most bands are trying to do. So that's at the table. But then I, I put a very, uh, <laughs> and this is just for my own sort of, uh, personal metrics of like, dude, we can't be that band that comes back every two or three years, plays a hometown show and then just like goes away. Cause that's going to look stupid. It's going to look like we're doing it for the quote unquote money. I'm like, I don't want that. If we do play more shows, it needs to be around the release of something. It needs to be a reason that we are playing this show. So I kind of set that parameter in 2010, obviously. And this is, you know, everybody's doing their own musical projects. Like, you know, like I said, Nick, our bassist is in Circus Survive. People are busy. So we got asked, it was in 2013, to play a benefit show for the sound guy who of Chain Reaction who tragically passed away from a motorcycle accident. We got asked to play a benefit show with Hello Goodbye. So we did that. And then again, it just kind of all brought those feelings up again where I was like, all right, guys, if we're serious about this, like I can get us, you know, a quote unquote new record deal. I can get us shows like these are all things that are easily attainable. It's just a matter of like getting our butts in gears as far as writing new stuff and getting this, this discography together. So basically once they kind of were like, okay, everybody's in, then that's when I kind of hit the ground running and was like, all right, let's play some shows around the discography release. And then as we get this new EP together, which will hopefully be released sometime in the summer of 2015, then we'll do some more shows around that. And um, yeah, so that's that's exactly how it, how it went. And like I said, it was never a matter of like we broke up because we hated each other. It was just a matter of like, all right, well, life got in the way. And then when we kind of came back together, it was like, oh yeah, we like this. Like, why would we why would we prevent ourselves from doing this? Isn't it crazy that like after a band breaks up that you start hearing the stories about how people think you broke up? Like I know that especially with Taken, that's a band where for a while the rumor was like, Oh, they they hated each other. Like that band exploded. But in reality, that's rarely the case. Yeah. I mean, there definitely was a it, it was weird because it was like at band practice one day it's like two members quit one member i saw kind of the writing on the wall because he just didn't like touring so in my mind i was already uh, kind of i already found a replacement i had already been like okay this person would make perfect sense in the band he actually he's the vocalist for touche amore um he was he was on deck to join taken and he would have been totally perfect for it because he had toured with us loved us as a band like just would fit perfectly so uh i already had that set up but then the other shoe kind of dropped with our original guitarist being like, guys, I, I, I need to focus on like my graphic design and school. So basically once he quit, that's when it really was like, okay, so me and Nick who played bass were like, all right, let's, you know, we went out to Starbucks and we we're like, do we do this? Cause we, we told ourselves if we lost another original member, cause we had lost our drummer a few years prior, um, then we would kind of wrap it up. And so then that just basically came, came down to it. And then ironically, 
the kid that we were playing drums with towards the end of Taken, um, he left to join Name Taken, which I thought was very funny. And I was like, and that band admitted to my face that they had taken the name from us. And I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. So you took our band name and then you could take our drummer. Like, <laughs> and I, I, I don't mean that as a, as a mean-spirited jab because I, I could care less, but it was, I just found the irony there like so thick. No, it's good. It's good irony. I'm glad I brought it up, or else it wouldn't have, I wouldn't have learned that little morsel myself. Please. Oh yes, it would, it, yeah, it would have been it would have been lost to the forgotten lore of the history books. Now I don't want to spend too much time talking about like your history in the music industry because you've had a, a number of jobs, like we already touched on it. You've worked for some big players like Century Media and such that people would recognize. But I feel like like retracing all of that is kind of unnecessary because you you do different things now. So let's like you do enough now that we can touch on what you're doing as of late, and I feel like we'll still talk about plenty of different things <laughs> sounds good um i want to start with PETA though because that's kind of the thing that's been going on almost the longest at this point right mm-hmm. yeah that's of your current projects oh definitely yeah that's been uh, i've been at, at at PETA, and i'll, I'll be a nerd and, and specifically correct you i PETA 2 is the more proper term for the, my day-to-day work and PETA 2 is the youth outreach program of PETA. So, I mean, technically I do work for PETA, you are correct, but yeah, that's existed for about just over five years. Okay. Okay. So how did you originally get involved with that? Now, like, can you maybe start with where you were before PETA comes along and kind of how you get introduced? Cause I have to believe that they're all kind of connected. They absolutely are connected. Um, I had worked prior to that. I'd worked at uh, century media records doing like, like you mentioned before doing A&R and signing bands and, you know, basically just kind of doing everything that, uh, it takes to release a record from the marketing plan and everything else. So, um, I had never, I I personally have been vegan and vegetarian since I was about 15 years old. So like that was already kind of at my core being, but I had never, ever, ever considered to like work for a nonprofit or like be active from that sense of the term. Um, just because that's, uh, it, it wasn't something that ever I ever considered. So it was about it was about 2008 or so. Um, I started to think about like, dude, this is weird. Like, I'm approaching being 30 years old, and I've never had a job interview. I'm like, this is like, and when I say never, like, I had a job interview when I was 16, but it's like I've never had a real job interview. Like, you know, sitting down across from someone and having them say like, where are you going to be in five years? I just never had that. So. I'd been working on a few projects with a person who worked at PETA2 because there were some uh, sympathetic bands on Century Media. And so I was kind of working on some cool things with her. And I, I jokingly mentioned that to her, like, oh, yeah, this is kind of weird. But like, I, you know, I was just been thinking about this recently. And then she's like, are you thinking about leaving the label? And I was like, well, I don't know. I had, I've kind of already done a lot of stuff that I wanted to do here. But like, if something cool came up, then sure. And she was like, you should send me your resume. And I was like, okay, like what, what do you, I don't even really know what you guys do over there. And so then she explained it to me a bit more and I was like, oh, so this is technically just like working kind of alongside of the music industry, except you don't have to release records and you don't have to uh, tell bands no to tour support and all the other awful things that I had to do at Century Media. So she showed her resume to my, to her boss. And then her boss calls me like almost immediately. And is like, oh man, you're a perfect person for this position. Like it doesn't even exist. I'm going to create it for you. And so, yeah, then I just got hired in and basically, you know, I, anybody that cares about animals in any capacity, um, I'm supposed to speak to, I'm supposed to try to come up with some sort of creative content, whether that's a video interview or a magazine ad or whatever the case may be, and then, uh, be able to deliver it to our people. They deliver it to their people. And then at the end of the day, they're obviously promoting 
animal rights in some capacity. Um, so it was just kind of a perfect marriage of all the things I was passionate about, but I just never knew I could make <laughs> make money off of it from that sense of the term. And that's kind of been like your full-time gig for the last five, six years now? Yes, I, I, the way that I describe it is, uh, yeah, this, that, that is what pays all of my bills, basically. That is my full-time job. That is what I dedicate 40-plus hours a week to. Um, and I work primarily from home because they've afforded me that opportunity. So, But I go into an office in Los Angeles uh, one day a week in like the Echo Park area. Um, but then the rest of the time, I'm at home. So it's a great, it's a great scenario. I encourage everyone to seek out work from home jobs if possible. I know it's not that easy, but it's, <laughs> totally. it's worth Every, it. I'm sure, I'm sure you get a million questions all the time from a lot of people just like, how do you do that? And it's like, uh, there's no, there's really no battle plan. You just kind of hopefully end up in a situation where you can like maybe negotiate some sense of that. It's like, you know, maybe you can't be full time at home. Maybe it can be, you know, one or two days a month that can turn into like a week. Who knows? But yeah, it's, it's the common question I get. I'm sure you do too. Yeah, I get it too. And I'm always just like, I legitimately don't know what to tell you. But I'm like, my best advice is like, don't ask for it. <laughs> but if someone happens to mention it, don't turn it down. <laughs> like it, you just have to jump at it if the opportunity presents itself. And I think that there's a good argument to be made for the productivity people can have in their own home. But at the same time, I know people who have gotten into like this kind of situation and they'll talk to me and be like, I just can't do it. Like I need to get out of my home or get out of you know my personal space for a while every day or it kind of drives me crazy that i don't have i don't have that problem so yeah neither neither do i it's, it's definitely it, it it isn't made for everybody but if it's made for you it's pretty much the best thing ever yeah it, it really is um now i, I want to talk about the podcast last so let's let's do no sleep next how'd you get involved with no sleep I got involved with No Sleep. Um, records known, for those who yes. aren't don't know. <laughs> yes, No Sleep Records. Yes, um, the I've known Chris Hansen, the owner, uh, ever since he was about like sixteen or seventeen years old. Um, he used to come to old Taken shows and just because he lived in Southern California for a long time, and he's just a guy that's always existed, sort of in my ecosystem, and I. I've always, I've always really enjoyed him. I always like, just liked him as a dude, um, incredibly socially awkward, but I just always liked him. And so then as I started to see his label grow and grow and grow, and we just kind of kept in touch. Like he, you know, he asked Makoto to be on some refused compilation that never ended up coming to light. So him and I just kind of stayed in touch from a business perspective. And then as like, clearly when I was at Century Media Records, I, could not help out any other record label from that perspective because it was, you know, a conflict of interest. But then as I started to enter the, you know, P to two side of things, um, this was around the same time as Chris started to, uh, I mean, things were getting so real for him because, you know, basically once the wonder years came out with upsides and that was such a massive hit, the label had really kind of, you know, grown to a level where it was like, Oh my gosh, like this is such a serious thing. So it's like here, here he was in, you know, 2000, whatever, 2010, 2011, where he was on the eve of releasing Balance and Composure, Separation, and Law Disputes, Wildlife. And it was literally just him and a person that shipped orders in the warehouse. So it was like, yeah, he, he did have, you know, he, he, he outsourced his PR. And like, if, of course, he had like a staff that was outside of the walls of the office. But it was kind of him just sort of operating on his own. And I saw where he was at and just knowing him as a person, I just basically, I approached him and I was like, Chris, like, dude, you're in some heavy stuff right now. Like, I would love to like sit down with you and just kind of like 
be able to just at least talk to you about stuff because he would always randomly hit me up or like, what do you think about this band? And it was always kind of like, oh, it's good. But like my question as a business person, I was always like, what are they looking for? Like, you know, are they, are they, do they have their expectations in check? Or are they looking for like a $25,000 recording budget? Um, so I basically, you know, I came to Chris and I was like, here, look, like seeing where you're at, like, let's, let's kind of just do this for a few months. Like, let me help you set up a, a royalty accounting system. Let me help you just like get your, you know, contracts and deals in order. And let me just kind of help be your sort of business sounding board. And so did that for a few months. And then Chris was, um, you know, understandably so independent record labels, like they, it takes a lot to be introduced into an ecosystem. And Chris is a very, um, he's a trusting person up to a point. So he's not going to just let anybody kind of come in and put their fingers in the pie. So basically after a few months of Chris being like, Oh dude, like Ray, you're, you're killing it at this and you're perfect for this. Uh, that's when we kind of established an official business relationship where I was like, okay, you're going to be paying me this sort of, this sort of commission a month. And, I'll be able to do these things for you. And um, that was, yeah, close to three years ago. And so basically I just, I'm his go-to dude for anything in regards to signing bands and, you know, offering advice on marketing plans and basically whatever he needs, I'm there for. And it's awesome because I can stay kind of piped into the sort of record label side of things, but not have to have the pressure of being, living in that, in that system you know, day in and day out where it's like, I, it just, you know, it gets working at a record label for a long period of time can kind of put you into a sort of rut. So I like being able to, to offer my advice and be able to like have a lot of hands-on work there. So that's how I got piped in and it's been awesome ever since. It's funny that you mentioned the upsides because that album turns five today on the day we're recording this. So. I know. I, I actually was wondering too if they're uh, if they're actually citing it as the hopeless re-release or if they're properly citing the No Sleep official release. I think so. it has to be the No Sleep official release because I definitely. I mean, it's right on time with the No Sleep official release. My life was so much different five years ago, <laughs> and this album puts it that into perspective so much. I actually have a tattoo on my foot that says "I'm not sad anymore" from this album, but like. I, I can very specifically remember everything that was happening in my life at this point five years ago. And when I woke up and saw people tweeting about that, I was just like, oh, man, that's weird. Yeah. Like, it's weird yeah. how fast you can, like, you can almost transport in that moment back to who you were at that point. And you're just like, holy crap. It's like seeing the world through a whole different set of eyes. Yep. Well, that's that. That's the power of music. And that's that's the one thing where it's like the music gets the music doesn't get older. I mean, of course, it can get older in our own heads, but it doesn't get older it just, it, it brings us, like you said, it brings us back into frame where we're just like, oh my gosh, like that record came out then and then you listen to it and you're just like, yo, this still holds up. Yeah. Uh, I was just, yeah, it was weird. And that's, it's, uh, it's the, we're all Matthew McConaughey and the music is our high school girls. That's okay. Yeah. It's totally fine. We'll, we'll keep revisiting them. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. It was, it was super strange. I, it was weird. That was my last semester of college. So that was one of those albums that just came out at like the exact right time for my life. Where even though I was like 22, I was like, Oh my God, someone wrote an album just for me. Like this, this one was just for James. Yeah. 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 No, it's beautiful about it. But yeah, well, I, I hope, I hope it is the, uh, the, the no sleep release. I do believe that is the case, but I just, so you always, anytime you see stuff getting re-released or celebrated, it's always like, wait, which, which date are you talking about? Are you talking about the real one or the fake one? <laughs> yeah, no, I completely, uh, oh, oh, January 26, 2010. So yeah, no sleep Spe release. Spectacular. Way to, way to go, internet. You did it the right way. Yes, way to go, internet. Everyone listening to this, you should probably revisit the, the upsides. How long has it been since you've done that? Probably at least a few months. Definitely. Yeah, come on now.
Um, it's crazy to think of how much no sleep has changed in five years in terms of it, like reputation, size. It, it it continually boggles my mind because like when you're when you're working so closely on something, it's obviously tough to have perspective. But then it's like when I exist in the real world, like it, it, I, I love and I'm sure you can share this experience where it's like if someone knows you from something. So it's like say someone knows me from like, oh, dude, you sang and taken. They're like, wait, you do something with no sleep records. They're like, oh, dude, you do something with that podcast. Like it's great to hear people from sort of different walks of life being able to offer that perspective because a lot of people you know, like when you're just locked into one thing, it's really hard. But then when you're able to kind of put pieces into different places, it's great because it's like, you know, sometimes I've, I, I specifically remember it's like talking to certain bands when I was trying to send them at Century Media Records and they're like, oh dude, you sang it, take it. It's so amazing. And like that can't help. I mean, that, that, that can totally help a band's perspective on wanting to work with you or vice versa, where it's just like, oh dude, huge, huge fan of the podcast. And then they show me their band and I'm like, your band's incredible. Like, do you want to talk about working with No Sleep Records? And they're like, what? You work for them? And it's like, it's so much fun to be able to put those pieces together. And then, yeah, again, just looking at No Sleep, where it's like, dude, it's unbelievable how much it's kind of grown and where it's like, where it just comfortably sits right now, where it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't need to, you know, blow up into this, you know, Rise Records atmosphere. It's like, it can exist in this world of just like, hey man, we're putting out really good records and we can sell a lot of records. So that's cool. We don't need to be in the Billboard top 100 for every single release. It's fine. And we're doing okay. Yeah, I'm happy to know that you're a part of that and that things are going so well. The new logo that Chris just unveiled is super cool. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Good. I'm glad. Yeah. Chris, Chris's design aesthetic and style never ceases to amaze me. It's like every new iteration of either the website or the web store. It's like, there are very few people I know that pay such close attention to like the web store user experience than Chris does. It's amazing. And it's like, it's stuff that I never, ever, or ever would consider. I'd just be like, oh, dude, the system works. That's fine. But Chris is always changing stuff and making sure that at the core of it, like the kids that support the label, um, and I use kids as such a broad term. Kids can be you and I, obviously. Um, it, it just, he, he makes sure that like at the core of it, they're the ones that are being serviced. Mm -hmm. above all it's like you know yeah obviously the bands are an extremely important part of it but it's like at the core of it just like kids man like the people that support the label it's like that's the only reason it exists and as cheesy and cliched as it sounds it's like it's the god's honest truth yeah it's it's incredible he i use no sleep as a like a, an example of like how i try to at least hopefully run a record label in the future moving forward like i take cues from chris because i when i was in college i got into college radio right away and that was right when no sleep was still getting its footing and i remember chris sending me a copy of the wonder years to play on the radio like a burned copy of a like three song sampler of the wonder years to play on the radio like and so to see where they are now and like remember that and not and know that that was within like the last decade it's just, yeah. it's, it's very impressive. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm continually impressed and I, I give him, I try to give him as many pats in the back as possible. Now, I, I do want to talk about the, I know we're running long on time, but we got to get the podcast in or people are going to be so upset if we went this whole time without mentioning the podcast. <laughs> it's, and, it's, it's totally fine. And it's been blowing up recently. And I, you know, I, I remember the no sleep thing. I was going to do research for this and I, I heard the episode with Rocky Vadalato and I was like, oh yeah, he does the no sleep thing. Because if you didn't do the no sleep thing, I would have been like three times more impressed by you landing Rocky. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I was still impressed. He's a great conversation. I've interviewed his brother, Cody, because I am probably the world's largest Blood Brothers fan, like three nice. or four times. And he always gushes to me about how nice Rocky is. And I've never gotten a chance to speak with him. So 
that was a really cool episode to me. I mean, how was, I mean, I guess they're probably all interesting for you, but as somebody that like that one kind of stood out to me as I was like, this is really neat. Like this is a different, a little bit different than the other ones that you've done as of late. Yeah. It's very, I mean, it's such a, the podcast is such a a special thing for me because it really is like, and honestly, I needed someone else to point this out to me that I have, I have to give a complete shout out to my producer, a a friend of mine named Tom Richfield. He lives over in the UK and he helps the show sound good. He helps, you know, with guests and he's just a huge help with the show and I wouldn't be able to do it without him. But he, when we were emailing each other one day, he said something that was very profound to me where it was like, Hey, you know, th- what we're what we together are doing here is kind of like documenting a scene as it were, whether it be, you know, whether it be punk, hardcore, indie rock, whatever you want to call it. I just always call it independent music. But I it, it really it took me a while to like let that sit in my head and I'm like, "Oh yeah, it is true because it's like even though all of these discussions are centered around <laughs> bands or people, um these conversations should play 10 years from now as they have like just this past week or whatever. And I think that's what is so special for me because it is just this audio documentation of people being able to check in at any point and hopefully be able to listen to more than one episode to be like, Oh dude, I like best compliment that I receive on the show is yo, I thought that band sucked, but dude, that interview was great. And like, I'm endeared to that artist just a little bit more because I I know for me, it's like anytime you're, I wouldn't even say your mind has changed, but anytime you interact with an artist on a real level, and you're even if you're just listening to an interview, you're just kind of like, oh, like that 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 person is a real person, and they're they're they've all their experiences add up to what they're doing right now. Um, but yeah, Rocky was awesome because I mean, like I was mentioning in the show, it's like I've known him for years, but then to be able to have that sort of you know nice prolonged conversation with him was was awesome, and yeah, so it's just the show continues to impress me as far as the way that people interact with it and sort of get in touch with me and just like write these like gushing letters of like, you know, it's like uh, people that write me these like, you know, page and a half emails and I'm not even exaggerating where it's like they're either telling me their own personal stories or they're telling like the, the beats in the actual interview that they like the most. And it was just like, dude, like this is so cool that, that you find so much value in this because, you know, essentially it's just me talking to this person for an hour, which is really fun but i hope that other people are getting value out of it so yeah i'm 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 glad that you find value in it too james <laughs> well you know but you touched on a good thing there that i have i struggle with sometimes as like a podcaster and like i listen to podcasts all the time but sometimes it is hard to wrap your head around the idea that there are other people in the world who don't mind listening to your voice for an hour at a time and these hour-long blocks um yeah and that always like i don't i'm not at the point where people send me emails though they totally could wink wink um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I do get like tweets from people that'll be like, Oh, I listen to the show every week or like I've made the show something that I listen to on Tuesdays or something like that. Like where they've just, where it's become like a part of their like routine almost. And that's, that's really the part that's so humbling to me. Cause it's just like, now we're just waxing poetically together. But I, but I mean, it, it is kind of crazy to just be like, Oh, so that person like relies on the thing that I do where I just talk to somebody that I find interesting for an hour to like be part of their weekly entertainment. That's kind of crazy. No, totally. I, I there's, there's nothing more important to me than time. Like as you get older and like, as you know, like I've mentioned before, it's like I have a three and a half year old child. Nothing becomes more valuable than time. You start to look at your life in a way where it's just like, not even so much like, Oh, I'm going to die soon. But just in the fact that it's like, you yo, this little thing is growing in front of me and that's insane. So time becomes very relative. So 
when people decide to check in on, like you said, what it is that you're doing or what it is that I'm doing and just really care about it, it's like, dude, there's so much stuff you could be doing. You could be doing anything. There's like an infinite amount of possibilities that you could be engaging with right now and you're deciding to carve this time out of your day for this. And it's like, come on. Like, that is just, that is so special. It's like, yeah. thank you. Yeah, I, 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 know, I know it sounds like, it, it does sound like we're waxing poetic, but it is, that is so special. If someone is listening to this right now, it's like, dude, you didn't need to be. Just thank do you, something yeah. else. But like, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, or do something else and put this on in the background. I mean, don't tune out completely, but <laughs> I completely know what you mean. Like, I, I feel that way, and I, I don't have a child yet, but I have reached a point in my life where I have started to, like, reconsider the way I look at time. And even, like, as being a part of the entertainment industry, I think it's important to, like, be conscious of how much time you're spending, like, engaged with content of some kind, whether it be new music or podcasts or movies, in my case, or other things. And I... I really try to like keep it throttled to an extent. So whenever some, and I understand like wanting to not, you know, spend all of your free time engaging with media. So when somebody can like carve out a part of their limited amount of time to like put on your show of all things, of all things in the world, like you said, it's, it's, it's strange. It's crazy, but it also kind of motivates you to keep doing it. Cause you're like, okay, I must be, I must be onto something here. I must at least have a knack for something here. There's something they find interesting. Yeah. There's value in it. Yeah, there's some kind of value in it. And then like, I, what I like about 100 Words is that you, you do do a nice job of like, I feel like you're not creating a nice tapestry of a whole scene. And it's, it's a loose definition, like you said, but they do, the stories kind of fit together in like a nice puzzle that I like. Like they, they, they fit together without feeling too similar, if that makes sense. Yeah, good. I'm glad, I'm glad you pick up on that. Because yeah, that's definitely something I like to do too. Because I try not to... The, the the two things I try not to do, I try not to travel into like, you know, old guy nostalgic territory of just like, oh, here's our incredible, you know, bands that existed before you were born. Because like, mm -hmm. there's something special about that and cool. And I, I do get a lot of feedback from those particular shows of, of you know, bands of yore or whatever. But then to also show that it's like, yo, just because you haven't listened to music in the past five to seven years doesn't mean cool stuff isn't happening. It is. You just need to like kind of open your, your, your ears up. And it's like, that's what the, the, the year end show that I always do with, with my friend Joey and my friend Jeremy, those are always so special to me because it's like so many people just check into that show and don't listen to anything else. But they are just like, dude, I never would have listened to these like three records if it wasn't because of this particular thing, because I respect all three of your guys' opinions from that perspective. And it's like, that's great because we're introducing you to stuff that's happening right now. So it's like, and I'm glad that you do see that regardless of, even if it is a old guy and nostalgic act, or if it's a new band, that both of those experiences, while they're different, you know, the old guy nostalgic band is like reading liner notes and thank you lists for their bands. And then, you know, a person of a younger generation is obviously like we joked earlier, like combing YouTube. Those are, different experiences but they still are at the core of it where it's like if you're curious you're going to do research if you're curious you're going to become more engaged in it and hopefully that's obviously what you're getting out of the experience in general because I, I could care less how a person finds out about this stuff just just support it and be into it and do it and honestly do it for as long as you possibly can because the more people into this stuff the better as far as i'm concerned 
I completely agree. I think we kind of approach it differently in like the types of stories we look to see. I, I try to approach it as like, I, I'd like to create a tapestry of the music industry at large. I like to find out the stories that kind of motivate people to get here because you and I as only children, like the way that we, I don't know, kind of learned, like cut our teeth in music and learned about music was something we kind of brought on ourselves. And people don't really know that unless you talk to them or as other people, they have a sibling or they have a parent and like we had Clinton Sparks on a while ago and he talked about how, when his friend asked him to help him rob a bank. And I was like, that's a crazy story that people should know because that eventually comes out in the music or it comes out in like why they do it, especially people that work in the industry that don't work on the public facing side of things. I think it's always important to understand why they have the passion they do because so many people underestimate the, you know, how broad the music industry can be. And I think that appeals to this scene as well, how you're kind of creating a tapestry as talent. At the same time, you're taking people that, you know, young listeners know and they respect, and you're also, you know, not afraid to introduce them to an influential mind or an older band that maybe was never on their worldview before. And now they, they see that there is more to the entertainment industry than what they previously knew. And I guess at the end of the day, that's kind of my goal is just to, and maybe your goal as well is just to show people that there's more out there and there's more good and a lot more good than people seem to estimate. Yeah, no, I totally, I, I concur wholeheartedly. And of course we can always talk about old tooth and nail bands if that fails. Oh, absolutely. There's there's a, a never-ending well of that. <laughs> One day, you and I will just launch a side podcast where we burn through the tooth and nail back catalog every week, a different band. <laughs> Dude, that would be, oh man. Yeah, like we... We can do that. I'll. I can take the heavier side of solid state things, and yeah, yes. it would just be. Oh, dude, it would be a perfect, perfect division of labor. Yes, and we can just walk. We can probably interview almost all those bands. Just bring oh. one person on and talk about it. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe we'll just get Brandon Ebel to uh, to to fund it. Just be like, hey, dude, just like give us a hundred bucks a month, and we can totally make this happen. <laughs> yes, definitely, definitely. I like that. If you like, if you're listening and you like that idea, you can tell us. We don't exactly. have we don't have the time, but we'll make it. We'll find yeah, it we'll, somewhere. We'll figure it out. <laughs> All right, Ray. Well, I know you ha you have a big day ahead, a big week. It's Monday. I have to get ready for a blizzard. Apparently, as we've been yes. sitting here, I'm sure that they've raised the amount of snow we're supposed to get another foot or so. So, well, ba basketball basketball games and concerts are being canceled. So you know it's the real deal. It is. I know. I think I was, I was supposed to maybe cover. I was supposed to cover Marilyn Manson this Wednesday, and I'm pretty sure it's going to get canceled, which is delays a lifelong dream of mine another several months. <laughs> Well, it'll fingers crossed it'll happen one day. One day, one day. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. So where can people find you? Now, I know you're on Twitter two ways. So what? it's xPurposeX. Yep, xPurposeX is the easiest entry point because that's across every platform from Facebook to Instagram to Twitter. So yeah, xPurposeX, that's my uh, universal tag for everything. It sounds like you're in a straight edge Christian hardcore band. I was I 100% ripped it off. I mean, fortunately, I'm still straight edge, so I can, those X's are meaningful to me. But uh, I just ripped it off of a uh, old New Jersey hardcore band that uh, I just I saw this, their sticker and I was like, yeah, that's my X purpose X at AOL.com. That's my screen name and that's it. And I'm very stubborn and I've stuck with it ever since. <laughs> Fair enough. And then what's the 100 words handles? Yes, the 100 words is just at 100 words, and that's the number 100 words podcast. That's for Twitter. And then you can just visit the website 100wordspodcast.com. Again, the number 100. Subscribe on iTunes. Give good reviews. Exactly, as every podcast owner tries to implore their listeners to do. <laughs> yeah, I only recently got into reviewing podcasts, but I know how much they mean to people, so I encourage others to do it. It's, it takes like 10 seconds. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's it's just a nice little shot in the arm too, where you're just like, oh, hey, that person liked that thing. Or it's it's always my favorite when people leave the negative one. You're just like, oh, okay, okay I suck. I'm going to go in the corner for a while. Yeah. And I'm like, well, if they listen to the whole show, I mean, I took an hour of their life. So I guess they're, they can, they can <laughs> call me a name because I, I still took some of their living, their time on this earth. <laughs> that's true. That's true. You do win. All right, man. Well, you, you have a great day. Thanks for coming on the show. No problem. Thanks, James. Yeah.